uh, since I've been here, there have been zero. Wow. Um, Round of applause. Snowmobile fatalities, and we've had one skier fatality. Okay. We used to we used to average one fatality every other year. Wow. And so. And um, since you've been here, that's been one. We've only over. had one fatality in six years. That's amazing. All right, it's winter time, which means it's skiing time, which means it's also avalanche time. And so when I was um, kind of mapping out the podcasts and who I wanted to interview, the Utah Avalanche Center was number one on my list for who I wanted to interview during a winter month. So I reached out to some of our connections over at the Utah Avalanche Center, and they all pointed me in one direction, and they said, why don't you ask Brett Kobernick to be on the podcast? And I hadn't heard of Brett, um, so I researched him, and immediately I was like, yes, yes, this is somebody I want to have on the podcast. Brett is just a f- just phenomenal. He's a fantastic personality. Um, he is the forecaster for the Manti LaSalle, or Skyline Manti LaSalle region. So if you're unfamiliar where that is, basically Highway 6, which takes you to Green River, if you're thinking um, that direction, just think south of that. So that area where the Skyline Road is, it's basically this 10,000 foot off-highway vehicle mecca during the summer and also during the winter. Very popular area for snowmobilers. So we, um, I reached out to Brett and I said, hey, can I come? Can we talk? And he was like, yes, of course. He was so kind and accommodating. He says, I'm going to go out um, with Lara, his partner, and they were going to go and do a forecasting day and they invited me to come and it's always a good day when I get to pack my skis to go to work and so he said I'll meet you at the Fairview Chevron um, at 10 a.m and we'll go from there and it was just a fantastic day it was so much fun Um, he showed up in his Utah Avalanche truck with (laughs) like this giant I can't even it's a weather machine but it looks like this big old robot that he had on the back of his truck and then he also had a sled, a snowmobile, but it wasn't a traditional snowmobile. And he'll get into what that actually was um, later on in the podcast. But I jumped in with them and we hooked each other up and well, we mic'd each other up. <laughs> and um, Laura, you can hear her voice occasionally coming through, picking up on the audio. But um, Brett and I have the mics on. We drive around and that's basically what happened. We had a conversation um, about what they do on a daily basis, what um, Brett's work looks like, how he's changed the face of the Utah Avalanche Center, especially down in this very important region of the state. And I was lucky enough to just tag along. Um, And my favorite part of the entire day, we didn't mic up when we went skiing, although there was some great commentary that we might have missed. Laura and Brett actually rescued a goat up in the area that we were skiing. They found, oh no, it wasn't a goat. It was a lamb or a goat. I can't remember. And they, um, I think it was a goat and they rescued it and brought it home. Like they put it in a sled during the winter time, brought it home and then took it to like a shelter. <laughs> and the best part of this whole thing was, so we were out skiing in Fairview and there's not a soul out there, right? Like I'm used to skiing in the cottonwoods where there's people all over in the backcountry these days. And they were so nice. They apologized to me. They said, sorry, we couldn't get you fresh tracks. Like, and mind you, they were completely fresh. There was another foot and a half of snow on top of the tracks that they had set the previous day. And that's what they were apologizing to me for. They were like, yeah, I'm sorry. We, you know, we skied here yesterday. We were the only ones 
<laughs> and yet we can't get you fresh tracks, but it was great. It was so fun. We skied a few laps, drove around and saw what they do on a daily basis. And they even offered to host me with some chili. I had to decline to get back up to Salt Lake, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brett and Laura for taking me out. It was so much fun. Um, and yeah, with that, the podcast, basically we just started talking right when we got in the car. So there's no formal introduction, Brett and Laura. Thanks again. Um, so I'm just doing a, um, a field work checkout here. We check out with all the forecasters. We, we actually, we check out with the, uh, forecaster on duty up in the Salt Lake district. Oh, do you? And they, yeah. So everybody who goes out in the field creates a field work plan and it's, and, and it's a safety, it's a safety tool. And, uh, we explain where we're going, what we're doing, what kind of conditions we're anticipating, when we're checking out, when we're expected to check back in. Okay. And um, and then the forecaster on duty up in Salt Lake keeps track of everyone and makes sure that everyone's checked back in at the end of the day. Smart. By the time that Buddy system, yeah. Because are um, there usually, I mean, you and Laura go out together but yep. does every region have two at least that got together? Or are you going um, out alone? Usually, usually we have partners of some sort, not all the time. And we do have leeway to um, work solo. And this is part of the, this is part of the um, of yeah, tool. That's the yeah. reason you can go solo. Right. Is you have somebody checking in on yeah. you and And aware. we also, just waiting for this to make sure. There we go. So everyone gets a text when the somebody checks out okay. and then they get a text when someone checks back in. So it's not only the forecaster on duty, he's kind of responsible of keeping track of everyone, but the um, uh, everyone else gets those notifications also. Oh, so really? So, so it's you kind know. of like we've all got our, each other's back. Oh, that's know? really cool. Yeah. So you know where everyone's going and yep. what they're headed to do. We, um, we, I was a big proponent of this um, system and, and helped develop yeah. it. For, uh, uh, especially when I came down to um, start forecasting full time here on the on the skyline, which has been how long? 2015 is when we moved down, and then I started full time. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And before that, you were forecasting up in Salt Lake. Yes. Okay. And uh, and what made you decide to come down here? Um, to be honest, it was just getting too busy. Yeah. Up in the Salt Lake Mountains, uh, I like a, I like I like smaller, smaller communities. Uh, I grew up in smaller communities, and and I have no no regrets about living in Salt Lake all these years. It was it was great, but it was time for for a shift. Yeah. Where are you both from originally? Michigan. I'm from Maine. Maine, Maine and Michigan. Okay. So uh, West Coast. When did you when did you come out west? to Colorado for a few years. And I moved out in 99 to Park City. Yeah. And is that what brought you out? Were you working at the resort or? Ski racing. You were racing? Yeah. Oh, so cool. Okay. <laughs> what, exactly what type of, uh, was it? Nordic skiing. Oh, really? Cross country skiing, yeah. Okay. That's awesome. How long did you race for? I raced all through college and then moved out here after college. Um, 
compete? I didn't know, and I I uh, quit racing about a year before. Okay. Uh, but that's kind of what settled me into into Utah. Okay. And then you've been here ever since. Uh huh. And I think, Brad, I read that you go back. Do you go back to the Midwest during the summers? Yep. We and go we'll, back for about three months. Really? Yep. And, uh, <laughs> and it's something a with cherry a cherry farm. That's right. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so anyway, we moved down here and, and we, we uh, created this this, uh, this checkout system. Um, there was a forecaster uh, that was killed up in Salt Lake, not one of the Utah Avalanche Center forecasters, but a, a, for a different entity. And um, we just thought it would be wise to tighten up our program before any type of accident yeah. were to happen. Smart. Um, and and so when I moved down here, it's a much different scene uh, dealing with the Manti skyline. Yeah. We have no resources like like the Salt Lake Mountains. And when you're out there, you're out on your own. And uh, so it's it very important to me personally yeah. to, to have this system in place. So you spearheaded that to yes. get that going for... Okay, and, uh, very smart. And continue to work on that um, to make sure that, that we just uh, you know continue to update it to make it as functional as possible. We don't want it to be a burden on the forecasters. We want it to be a tool that's that's useful for them. Right. Um, so it's you know there's a there's a balancing act there, but it's it's worked great so far. And if we do if we do end up going out into the field solo, what we end up doing is we. Uh, carry other um, tools like uh, sat phones, satellite telephones, and uh, probably the most useful one is a um, spot or in-reach device. Right. And if anyone was wondering what a satellite or a sat phone is or an in-reach device, um, satellite phones are basically what the name implies. It's a phone that utilizes satellite as opposed to terrestrial cell towers. Obviously, we're seeing more of that with, you know, the cell networks that we do have, the satellite networks that we do have for our mobile devices with 5G, but you still don't have service all the time in remote locations. So these phones are fantastic um, because you can use them just like any other phone. They can send texts, they can make calls. So it's a good piece of equipment if you're trying to stay in touch with certain other people while you're out in the backcountry. I've had friends who have been on river trips for weeks at a time that will use those to stay in touch with loved ones. And then an in-reach device is a little bit different. It doesn't necessarily have the texting and calling capacities as a sat phone. It's more of a emergency device in case you are, you know, lost or hurt in the backcountry. So Brett will explain what he used his in-reach device for. Um, it's great because you can actually program it to text certain individuals. So Brett used it to text his, um, his team at the Salt Lake Ranger District to let them know what he was up to that day and what was going on. But I just want to give Brett like a huge round of applause for his ingenuity in creating these protocols for the entire Utah Avalanche Center. Um, it's pretty remarkable that, you know, he went down to this area and kind of just reworked how the whole system works. And I think that's really impressive to make everybody um, out in the backcountry that are doing this great work for us, forecasting and making sure that they are aware of the snowpack, making sure that they are safe and that everybody's accounted for. So, Big shout out to Brett for his ingenuity and in thinking through this. Yeah. And then we'll we'll communicate with the forecasters throughout the day, sending them occasional um, uh, check-in um, 
locations. Right, where you're at. And then so if something were to happen, they've got a they've got a paper trail. You know, they they, yeah. they know where our trucks parked. They know what our objective ours was for the day, and um, they have seen some coordinates where we've been traveling. So has that come in handy and and in, in actual use? Yeah, yeah, has it? It has. Uh, here on the skyline once I was. Uh, I was out on the snow machine and um, the thing broke down. Oh, okay. And I always carry skis uh, so I can travel. Yeah. Uh, there's there's no way I would I would uh, go out into the mountains without without skis or some sort of travel device, snowshoes or something. So anyway, um, out of I'm out of service. It's a beautiful day. Uh, you know, otherwise I wouldn't have been where yeah. I was. No impending weather. Yeah. And, timing and all that so it was no big deal but um i had no communication and uh it didn't look like i was going to be late for my check-in you know that afternoon but i still started sending um messages and i started sending them about every 15 minutes and and, and after about four or five of them they kind of clued in they looked at the point and they're like well, that point's really close to the last right, one. Right, you're not moving very fast. Yeah, they're like, he's walking out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was dang. a beautiful day. It was a, it was just like yeah. sunny and uh, easy walk, just walking on the snowmobile trails, and it was no big deal. How but far out were you though? Was it a? It took me a few miles. It took me. I, I want to say it took uh, two and a half or three hours to walk. Okay. Um, it was a. It was cross flats. I wasn't gaining or or descending much gaining much elevation or descending but uh it took about two and a half three hours i think it was maybe eight eight miles or something like yeah. that <laughs> so um yeah that it was it was a uh it was a useful tool and and they the forecaster on duty and the rest of the forecasters that were getting the messages figured out exactly what <laughs> smart yeah well that's such a great i mean hopefully things don't happen first for the the protocols to be put in place That's i know that right. was kind of what the know before you go how that was initiated right yep. due to a and yeah maybe you could tell kind of why that was put in place i know there was an incident in timpanogos yes. a few years ago and, yeah and uh yeah it's been quite a while now and um yeah that program kind of got born out of out of that uh unfortunate accident there were were uh, a number of high school students is that correct? High school or college? I want to say, yeah, either high school or college. Uh, well, yeah, I think high school, if I remember right. But, um, uh, yeah, there was, a, I forget if it was two fatalities. Uh, regardless, to alert young folks about the dangers of, of avalanches in the mountains, it's kind of like um, riptides in Hawaii, for instance. You know, you, that if you live there, you learn at a young age what those are all about so when right. you're in the mountains you learn that there's avalanche danger uh or can be and so that program was was uh, put in place where they were started doing presentations at all the schools right yeah and it's all grades it seems like right you're yeah, going out yeah, to elementary schools yep. high schools yep. yep yeah um so that's been a really successful program and they've expanded it 
to some online learning. Was that, that's just a recent thing as well, right? As of like last year even? Yeah. With COVID, doing it. Yep, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a recent advancement. Um, uh, but quite a successful program for avalanche awareness. Yes. Well, yeah, that's an interesting point that depending on where you live, that should be part of the curriculum in schools, yeah. right? To Yeah, you're at the beach, if you live yep. on the ocean, if you're in the mountains. Because we were just having another conversation with a school that wanted to start kind of an outdoor hiking program, right? They needed uh-huh. all this equipment. And yep. I told him, I was like, have you have you even heard of the UAC? Do you know No Before You Go? And yep. she was like, no, I don't know. And I said, well, yep. that's if you're going to send kids out in the mountains, this is a great tool. Absolutely. So. That's exactly what it's Okay, I did want to give a little bit more information about this Know Before You Go program because it is so important and really cool that it was started in Utah. It's not cool about how it started because there were, um, I did a little bit of research on the exact um, event that caused this and there were three large avalanches that covered six people and three teenagers were killed back in 2003. So it was kind of this perfect storm, literally plan words, but in, in all actuality, the, um, this giant storm came through during the 2003 winter and there was a group of people at Sundance Mountain Resort skiing and snowboarding and there were obviously a lot of people there during this time and so they decided that they would leave the resort and do a little bit of hiking up near the Aspen Grove Trailhead. So if you've been up there, that's the access point to the um, Timp... Timpanogos, Mount Timpanogos, excuse me, and to Stewart Falls. And so they were hiking up there, and that area is just steep. Um, It's known to avalanche this year alone. We've had a couple avalanches up near that area. And so they were playing around unaware that they were in a very dangerous terrain. It looked pretty similar to what they had been skiing on, but the ski resort does avalanche mitigation, and this area was not mitigated for avalanches. So very unfortunate that a big avalanche broke, knocked the people down, buried six of them, and three were unfortunately killed. And so the Utah Avalanche Center, you know, was well aware of the situation, and they said, we need to make something happen. So they actually targeted eighth graders in all of Utah and started this Know Before You Go campaign where they would come into schools and tell people, hey, this is what an avalanche is, this is what causes them, this is where you can avoid if you want to stay safe. And that initiated this this great movement. Um, and now there are avalanche and know before you go programs in Canada and all over the United States um, telling people about the dangers of avalanches. So just a really cool program. If you have any more questions about the program or want to have it come to your school, you can go to kbyg.org, knowbeforeyougo.org. Um, or go to utahavalanchecenter.org. Their website will have information on that as well. And like we discussed with Brett, this actually is now a virtual program as well. What with COVID, they have online resources that you can take advantage of so you don't have to have them actually come to your school, but you can learn all you need to know on the website. So just a really big plug because it's great work that they're doing and um, just big props to Utah Avalanche Center for, for making this happen. And we're going to be going into Huntington Canyon Okay, yeah, you mentioned that. And that is um, that is a corridor that uh, provides transportation to these, to, uh, uh, there were a number of mines down in Huntington Canyon and also a power plant down there. 
and that is um, that road uh, has avalanche threat. Okay. And so, um, you know, the UAC we've partnered with a lot of different organizations, and uh, the Utah Utah Department of Transportation mm -hmm. is one of those partners. And so, um, the relationship that I have with them is that uh, I consult with them on um, avalanche conditions for that canyon. Uh, they don't have the ability to staff the, uh, that particular canyon with a full-time forecaster. For one reason, it's infrequent avalanche danger. Uh, so it's pretty tricky. Um, so anyway, my, uh, my relationship with them is, is to consult with them and alert them to conditions when uh, an avalanche danger may be uh, a concern and okay. may have to do road closures or mitigation or what. Right. So do other regions, I mean, obviously like up in the Cottonwoods, UDOT is primarily responsible, they are responsible yep. for the avalanche mitigation and knowing and what's going on up in those canyons. Sure. And that's your job down here as well. Yeah, so uh, like I say, I do the uh, avalanche consulting, and okay. when they, if I'm if I'm like, hey, it's gonna hit the fan. Yeah. Uh, then I work with them. They come down, and we make a plan on how we're gonna um, handle, uh, you know, keeping folks safe in that okay in that corridor. Because is that the? Are there any other um, road avalanche? problems and issues in this entire region or is Huntington Canyon kind of the main one? Um, Huntington's the main one. There are a couple of smaller um, uh, what we call road cuts okay. basically. Uh, steep paths right above the road that will dump enough snow down to uh, block the road or potentially push a vehicle off. Mm -hmm. um, but they're more scattered. Huntington actually has actual avalanche paths that, that will uh, threaten the road okay and, and pretty serious threat we've seen large avalanche cycles in there really okay and i do want to take a minute just to explain what an avalanche path is and why he's talking about certain areas being more prone to avalanches um I get a lot of people when I say I backcountry ski that they just immediately say, oh my gosh, that's so dangerous. How could you do that? That's that's so scary, right? And rightfully so. Like when you're going into the backcountry, it's good to be cautious. It's good to be aware. Obviously, you need to be aware. Um, but I do want to preface this with there are certain slopes and certain places that do not avalanche um, regardless of, of how much snow has been falling or what that weak layer even looks like, right? So typically what we say is that um, slopes less than 30 degrees don't don't avalanche. If you're skiing on something that's 25 degrees, you are safe. You are not in avalanche terrain. Um, you can feel safe about that choice. And so what Brett is talking about is there are certain areas on this road where the slope is far above 30 degrees. Um, and that sweet spot that's like 30 to 45 degrees is typically where we see a lot of the slides. Once you get above that 45 degree mark, it's you know, things are so steep that snow doesn't maybe even stick to the areas. So I will say um, there's just certain areas that, that don't avalanche and certain areas that do. And it's very, very important to be able to read the terrain and notice, okay, am I skiing on a slope that's 35 degrees or 25 degrees? Because that's very different. And that's something that you take um, into consideration every time you go skiing is 
what is the slope angle? What am I going to be skiing on, below, underneath, or next to? So you might be able to ski a slope that's 25 degrees, but is there 35 degree slopes above you or next to you, right? So that's just something where he's talking about these road cuts, that those are areas that do tend to slide more than others. So the entire road doesn't have mad avalanche danger, but certain pockets do, and that's what he needs to be aware of. So just thought I'd throw that in there because it can be confusing about, well, is everything avalanche danger? Um, and the answer is no. When we have uh, dangerous conditions in the um, what I call the recreational uh, zones of, of the skyline, the higher terrain where people are snowmobiling and skiing, mm-hmm. when, we, when we see a prolonged danger there, usually down in Huntington Canyon, there's not as much going on. It's a, a, a little bit different climate, different snowpack. Okay. And and so um, usually when we have higher avalanche danger up top, we're not so concerned about down in Huntington. Now, almost the exact opposite happens when we have a deep, stable snowpack up top. Mm. And we have, um, there's enough snow down in Huntington Canyon to form uh, weak layers that get buried. And then there's also enough snow to reactivate those right so that i'm kind of anticipating um potentially a uh an interesting year in huntington canyon since we are stacking up snow right now yeah um we'll probably the the hazard right now is up high uh okay mid elevations and up up to the right because you put it at considerable today right for those higher elevations that's right and and as well as the mid elevations and um, that's gonna that's gonna be the, the the trend here over the next couple of weeks. But um, most likely, anything can happen, of course. But most likely, that those layers will stabilize at some point, and um, the snowpack up top most likely will be uh, will become more stable and less avalanche danger. And that's what I'm anticipating. Um, that we may start to see problems down in Huntington. Mm, Just based on about six years of, of anecdotal observation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're the one to, to anticipate that. Yeah. And it is so interesting that an entire area, right, you're forecasting for this entire skyline region yep. and every pocket, every canyon, every area might have different oh, problems yeah. and you have to kind of just say okay the biggest or the most severe is yep. is in this area therefore the entire region it's been really be. fun and interesting um trying to figure all of this out yeah uh because there was there this this we never had a full-time forecaster down here we never knew about all the interest you're the first one yeah wow um so I, it's been really fun to pioneer all this stuff in, totally. in forecasting setting trying to figure out all the nuances between all these canyons and, yeah. and how things play out with different weather patterns in different years with different amounts of snow so how what was the decision with uac to then put a forecaster down here what well, did you we, see problems or we, yeah uh, we had a um a new um supervisor hired who's leading the avalanche center mark okay staples yep and and he came in and uh, I showed him a map of um, uh, with locations of all the fatalities we've had over the years, and he looked at the skyline, and he was like, "This is where snowmobilers come to die. Oh. <laughs> we need to start covering wow. this area because it's primarily snowmobilers. I mean, what percentage would you say? 
Um, Maybe it's I hard would to, say hard to 85 say. to 90%. Really? If, if we're talking just skiers versus snow, you know. Yep. Yeah. Snowmobilers. Yeah, they're not many. 90%. Now, that said, um, I don't know the percentage of fatalities, but we've had at least uh, one, two, three, four, four that right off the top of my head that were skiers or snowboarders. In the past time um, since you've been here? Uh, no, since since um, since we've been keeping a record. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, since I've been here, there have been zero. Wow. Um round of applause snowmobile fatalities and we've had one skier fatality okay. we used to we used to average one fatality every other year wow and so and um, since you've been here that's been one we've only over... had one fatality in six years that's amazing it, i don't I, I i do think that a lot of it is um is awareness um and and i've certainly uh will take credit for for helping um get folks more aware that there are avalanche dangers up here yeah um, some of it might be just dumb luck too who knows <laughs> no i think totally the awareness and i mean i, I think there's just been so many new participants to the backcountry yes. too so that number has increased so to have fewer fatalities there's is even no more question impressive. in that you yeah. know everywhere is getting busier right so and i would say too you've had a really unique ability to kind of connect with the locals around here which didn't yep. previously yeah it was gonna ask so now I feel like it's almost and I don't know how to really put this but you know educate all of a sudden avalanche education is now kind of cool in this rural area totally. where it wasn't it wasn't previously and he's I think I think you're to credit for changing the way people yeah. perceive avalanche awareness and being educated about it they want the education now yep. whereas a po before it's like my great granddaddy did this yeah. and my, you know <laughs> and why do i need to why it, do i need to like look into this so i think you've really changed that yeah i think that um uh well one thing that's helped a lot is that uh i am uh an avid uh, motorized user. I was going to say, you are both. You've yes. got both backgrounds. Yes. And, and I build my own machines. Yeah, we got to talk about that too. I, <laughs> and, 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 well, and a farmer in that, so yeah. you know, connects with these people that or are ranchers, the rural. Yeah. It's, so it's been, it's been easy for me to make a bunch of friends and I've gained a lot of respect from them. Um, wow, they picked the perfect guy. Just go, going to, yeah, going up and riding with them and and uh, and you know, working with them with help, helping them teach me things about my machines and yeah, what yada, a cool yada, partnership yada. and just yeah. relationship to build here. Yeah, and so it's been it's been a really uh, it's been a pretty rewarding shift from my days up in, in Salt Lake. Yeah, which was really rewarding in its own ways too. Did you start kind of tinkering and building machines when you moved down here, or has that always been? Yeah, I've you've always done? I've always been um, uh, I've always liked to do custom uh, oh custom whatever I'm into. You know, I I, I helped Volet develop the uh, split board. Yeah, that was another one of ago. my notes we got to talk about. So that was um, that was uh, it was kind of a natural progression, you know. The majority of the terrain up there in the, in the Tri Canyons, where I was forecasting and and, uh, and living in Rec 
creating was um, non-motorized use, so right. it made sense at that point. Um, I've always been uh, versed in machines and engines from, from growing up on the farm, but um, I didn't really have a solid knowledge of snowmobiles when I was in Salt Lake. I, I did own my own machine. It was just this little beater that I used to, to skirt around and, and get up and, and be able to check out some, some terrain, but um, it wasn't really until I, I guess it was a couple years before we moved down here that uh, that Wally got those those snow bikes and we started. Um, 2013, I think, is yeah, when we were so, Right, so that was that really um, kind of kicked off my winter motorized use. Okay, going back to the split board, talk me through kind of that process. How did you come up with the idea? Did you see a demand for it? Um, what was the process? I uh, just pretty, pretty much just a, a selfish personal <laughs> want. Because <laughs> you're a snowboarder, that was your background. Um, yeah, well, I, I grew up skiing in Michigan, uh, got turned on to the snowboard. I really loved how the snowboard floated and and uh, uh, really loved the, the, uh, the sensation of the standing sideways and carving those those turns on the snowboard. Yeah. Just wanted to be able to do that more in the backcountry. I was working at the ski resorts at the time. Wanted to, to be able to do that more in the backcountry between storms when, you know, the things get skied out at the ski resort. Um, it just seemed like there was a better way to travel out there than with just trying to boot pack up something or use snowshoes. Uh, and so one year just started tinkering in my garage and, and uh, finally came up with this design and a couple of guys from the backcountry that I knew up there encouraged me to meet uh, Mark Warakoy who owns Vole Equipment and uh, surprisingly at the time Telemark Ski Company and didn't, didn't really think much of snowboarders. <laughs> right. Surprisingly, he liked the idea and, and we started working with it and uh, it's, it's really taken off finally. Wow. Well, yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's... It's a legitimate backcountry It totally tool. is. Yep. Yeah, and people that are... I mean, I think like Wonder Alpine, right? Making these skis in a really sustainable, cool way. Utah local brand finally decided, yeah, we want to we wanna make snowboards too. Right. And they've adapted that same same idea. Yep. So, right. so do you get commission now on every split board ever made? Well, I used to, but the um, our agreement ran out after seven years, I believe. Okay. Um, which is kind of industry standard. Is it? The, the one bummer was I think it could have grown faster than it did, which would have benefited me financially mm -hmm. more. What but do you think would have would needed to have that happen? How would it have grown faster? Well, the, our first boards, um, because those guys were such avid skiers, they wanted to have side cut on both sides of the um, of the uh, two individual skis that makes the snowboard. Oh, okay. And so there was a gap in the middle of the board, Ooh. which was actually a brilliant idea. It, it really worked very well. Um, when the thing was split, and you didn't really notice it when it was put back together. Just a small gap in between. Yeah, you know, it had a side cut, so there's just kind yeah. of a little bit of a gap there. Okay. Um, but the problem was people's perception. 
couldn't get past the gap in the middle of the really that they're gonna sink that's not gonna flow or that, just, yeah, just something too, was wrong too weird too weird it was too weird to have a board split in half and then and to have, have a, a hole in the middle, middle of it <laughs> this does not add up yeah and yeah that uh, so that slowed production in my opinion i see slowed it slowed the whole process okay I mean, I'm sure your snowboarding buddies were just thrilled, though. Was it? Oh, did yeah. Did you feel like we your were, circle took to it really fast? Oh, we were loving it. We were, yeah, we were just like, who cares if it ever takes off? We got, we got, <laughs> we, we did got it. tools and we can yeah, go we're and, walking uh, around and we're snowboarding in the backcountry. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, it was cool. Well, when I found out that was your invention, I was like, man, this guy's got. Because then you made, then going into the snow bikes, too. Yeah. That's a new, that was your idea as well. Well, um, not exactly. Okay. Um, the way that the snow bikes have, have progressed is that um, uh, there was a company that started um, building these kits to, that you can convert your motorcycle. You, you take the wheels off, you bolt these, bolt the track on, bolt the ski on, and off you go. Okay. And 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 I started using those uh, yeah, around 2013 and. Um, what I've figured out is that um, they are they, they they use such small tracks and have such small engines that they they they're not very good at all in any type of deep unconsolidated snow. Mm, okay. And so um, while I've been using these things out here in the uh, on the skyline, I've just. Uh, I've always wanted to have a better single ski machine because they are so maneuverable. It's yeah. an incredible tool for forecasting. I can literally go anywhere on this mountain. Just uh, because it's, I mean, there's dense trees in areas. You're trees, trying to there's, maneuver. You run into firm snow where you can't side hill on a snowmobile. Um, I okay. can safely go anywhere I want to go on that machine. Um, and, and so what I started doing was uh, I started using snowmobile engines and clutches. Okay. And and making building my own custom frame and using a full-size snowmobile track with a, with a uh, single ski. So, okay. So I've got the I've got the uh, maneuverability of the snow bike, but I've got the power and the traction. Right. Because you would need both. I mean, if it if it doesn't yes. do super well over. Um, Powder. I mean, yes. you're going to be you're going to be encountering that. Hopefully, yes. right? Yes, uh, absolutely. There, yeah, there, we we deal with enough of it that I was like, uh, yeah, I, I either needed to to, uh, to get a um, snowmobile or come up with this concept. Yeah. So I hope you're catching on here, guys. That <laughs> Brett isn't somebody that just sits and waits for something to happen or be invented or begin. He just takes matters into his own hands and he says, okay, we need a new system for forecasting. I'm going to create that. We need a new tool to get in the backcountry for snowboarders. I'm going to make that. We need something that's going to get me around this entire skyline Manti LaSalle region. Okay, great. I'll build a snow bike. And he just continues to do that, which I like, as I listened back through this interview, I think when I was there, I was like overwhelmed with just like, man, this guy's awesome. But now as I look back, like, he is just critically thinking through every problem and making it happen. And um, his wife, Laura, made an excellent point that like 
he is the perfect person for this because he can relate to everybody on you know each level he knows about the machines he knows snowmobilers yet he's a snowboarder and a skier like just really impressive that he can kind of he's literally a jack of all trades um and so I just was really impressed and yeah just kind of mind blown that as I'm listening to this, I'm like, yeah, he's just solving problems left and right as he sees them come up. And I think that's just a very um, important quality to have, especially when you're in the backcountry, to be resourceful, to look around and make sure that you are safe, others are safe, and he's demonstrating those qualities in his work. Fantastic. So thanks, Brett. Cool. It's been really, really fun. It's been frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> Lara's I can to, imagine. She's, right. You're a patient She's patient me woman. out of... Uh, I, I usually have to tow the machine out once a year after breakdown. <laughs> that's, that's Some been, little hiccup. That's been the average, just right? something. Right. I mean, that that's a pretty good average, just once yeah, a year, I, maybe. Um, I mean, ask anyone who uses any type of snow machines. Up right. There, they all... There's always an yep, issue, it seems. You're like, yep, I've towed my friend out. Yeah. Or I've been towed out. Totally. So what's this big parking Okay, so area? this is the um, this is the uh, Skyline Summit here. This is one of oh, the more is. popular trailheads. Okay. Um, it's there's parking on the left hand side, and there's parking on the uh, the north side and the south side. Yeah. The south side is also um, a very popular and actually pretty world renowned spot spot for kite uh, skiing and snowboarding. Really? Yep. It's got very, oh. very uniquely consistent wind. Cool. Yep. Um, and so it's like a, it's pretty, I mean, it's rolling, but it's, pretty, it's yeah, relatively it's pretty flat. flat here. Okay. The, the kiters, for the most part, and I'm saying for the most part, um, don't really get into a whole lot of avalanche terrain. I was going to ask, is that, do they have any issues? Yeah, not a whole lot. Okay. Um, there are some folks that, that get more adventurous and will get into some of the bigger terrain. But for the most part, they enjoy this area up here. And for one reason, it's the, the wind is really consistent through here where this gentle terrain is. Okay. Right adjacent to the road. Interesting. Well, yeah, we're at how, how high are we right now? 9600 was the... Um, was the uh that's the summit top of the pass okay yes yeah uh, it's one of the highest year-round maintained roads in utah is I it think there's one more south down around brinehead that may be a, a couple hundred feet higher okay but, but there's very few that go to 9600 feet right well that's i guess why it's so popular right to it's, it's very, ohv yep you drive right up there and there's no approach and you're right right you're right here Okay, that's awesome. As we're driving here, I'm just noticing, um, I'm seeing these uh, these features on the on the snow surface, and I know that there's been some some wind. You can kind of see some right. of these uh, gentle drifts and whatnot. Now, that's not too um, out of the ordinary for this zone because, like I was saying, uh, it's, it's kind of uniquely windy. Right, I was right going to say, if it's a world renowned for wind, yep. then yep. Um, but uh, this is kind of part of the uh, daily routine. Is when we're going up, we're looking, we're looking at stuff as we're traveling here. Yeah. Uh, we're not. I'm noticing that this side's been stripped a little bit. Not as much snow over there, and and these uh, these these little terrain features or snow features that you can see across the, the fields here. They're they're telling me that things have been drifting a little bit. We've got yeah. um, drifts that have been coming onto the road right here so we 
know that there's been some wind transport. Uh, we take that little bit, bit of information, yeah. stick it in our pocketbooks and, and uh, continue on and, and, and gather more information and try to try to piece it all together for the daily so forecast. You're doing daily forecasts, but you also said there's you're not out in the field every day. Not every day. So how often do you do field work like this? Five days a week. Oh, yeah. Really? On average. So it's not. it's almost every day. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's just about every day. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. that's, that's a nine to five it's right not there. not every day, but. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or sometimes it's just, you know, a couple hours too, you yep. know? Yeah. Come out here and ski for two hours and notice what we notice and um, and go back. So not not every day is a full, full, yeah. you know, right. day either. A full, yeah, okay. So to create the... Um, forecast that you did for this morning for example yep. did, were you out yesterday yep. did you and what time do you post that's always my question um seven o'clock is when we try to get the forecast published so most of the information from the field is from the previous day so okay. we're gathering information right now for tomorrow's for tomorrow. forecast okay and what we're doing right here is we're looking at a um we're looking at one of the usual suspects um, this is this uh, this little pockety um, area over here, steep zone in the trees, mm -hmm. is a is turned out to be a really good indicator for unstable snow. It's not uncommon to see natural avalanches in here, and, and mm. it's one of the more um, it's a great indicator because we can see it right off the road. Yeah. Totally. And it and it happens time and time again. I don't see anything today. No, I don't either. Okay. Um, that is not avalanched yet that we know of uh, this year yet. So we know that the um, weak layer is mm -hmm. intact there. Okay. And and so when that releases, that's going to give us good information. Yeah. Now. And avalanche terminology can get a little bit confusing if you haven't taken an avalanche course or are new to kind of just the what's going on with avalanches and, and speaking about them. But when Brett's talking about this weak layer here, um, he's talking about this layer of snow. You know, when you think about snow cycles and storms, they fall in layers. So we get three inches of snow or we get a foot of snow. Um, and so that's a layer of snow. And then sometimes we don't get another layer of snow or another storm for a couple weeks. Um, and so that can create this problem where you've probably noticed it when the snow turns into kind of these crystals on top. So if you're out hiking or skiing and you see crystals on top of the snow, that's called surface hoar or facets. So I like to think of it as like, okay, you have a floor bed, right? And then you throw a bunch of marbles on it. And then you put a mattress on top of those marbles the mattress is going to just slide right off of the marbles, right? And so if you're thinking about layers of snow, those facets or that surface hoar is like this layer of marbles and then this new snow gets piled on top of it and it slides right off of it because there's no way for the new snow to bond to the old snow with those facets on top. So it's kind of this tricky balance because Brett and I talked about this later on where it's, you know, January, end of January right now where I'm, you know, recording this or editing this podcast and Utah Avalanche Center just recently, as of the past week, lifted that persistent weak layer that we've had for a majority of our 2023 season from our list of avalanche problems. 
So because we've had quite a bit of snow in the past month, we've had, you know, multiple feet of snow, that snowpack has actually consolidated down to that weak layer and caused it to bond. And so it's this tricky balance where if you have just a brand new faceted weak layer with a new snow formed on top of it, that's when we see a lot of the problems. Over time and with what they call healing of the snowpack, that's when that faceted layer decreases, the marbles, quote unquote, go away, and then you have that bonding that happens. So that's what we're seeing in our snowpack currently, at least in the season right now. Um, but it is something that Utah has a problem with almost every year with this persistent weak layer. We usually get a great storm in October or November like it was this year. And then we didn't get a lot of snow until December. So that gave time for that, that snow to become faceted and for new snow to just slide right off of it. So that's what we saw. We have saw some really high avalanche danger days um, in late December, early January. And now we're seeing that start to heal, which makes it more exciting because you get to ski a little bit more aggressively, a little bit of um, um, safer, safer snowpack right now. So anyway, that's just a little bit of blurb about layers. If you have more questions about all of these terminology and everything that Brett's talking about, please go visit utahavalanchecenter.org. I'm constantly looking at weather models on the computer. I yeah. usually check them twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening, so I have a good handle on what the weather's going to do. There's not very good products for mountain weather forecasting here on the skyline. I have to do all my own weather forecasting. Really? We, I produce all of my own uh, weather forecasts. Snow, water amounts, wind speeds, temperatures, yada yada. Um, and um, so that goes on in the morning to, as I'm producing the forecast we take observations from yesterday and also observations from other folks I get a lot of feedback from I've been getting more and more feedback from locals who tell me about avalanches that they've triggered they'll okay. shoot me a text message or they'll get a hold of me through a buddy so we do get some information but not a whole lot Okay. Um, so that those observations uh weather forecasts and then we look at um our automated weather stations which are consist of my two weather stations and a series of um nrcs snowtel sites okay around the, the range and um um a few other private weather stations that are in the network as well okay so we get a we can get an idea of, of temperatures, wind speeds, and snow mounts and water mounts through those various um, weather stations. So we take all that stuff and try to distill it down to a simple format in the avalanche forecast that gets um, published by 7 o'clock each morning. Okay. So that's basically how these forecasts work. Okay. Um, this weather station came about because uh, I wanted to be able to put a I wanted to be able to be able to put a weather station out in, in, in a couple different regions, a couple of different areas that um, we weren't sure how things were going to work out, so we didn't really want to spend time for the permanent installation. Okay. Permanent installations also require. Um, uh, permission from various land agencies. Right, for sure. So, so you got to take that into consideration. So, I just built these things using the same instrumentation as we would on a 
permanent site, but put them in these little um, uh, sleds, utility sleds, that you can tow over the top of the snow. So, That's so cool. So what we do, we, we have one that we put up in uh, Spring City Canyon. Okay. And what we do on that one is we go, we wait till the last snowstorm that we think we're going to still be able to drive up the canyon. Okay. And we'll drive up and we'll deploy the thing. Then at the end of the season, I tow it down with the, with the snowmobile. With this one, it's just right off the road. So the oh. one that we're delivering today, it's just right off the road. Just so easy. we're just going to pull it off and pull it out into the um, into the clearing. And is this the same location? I mean, have you put it up here before? Or yes, how do you decide where to put it? Yep. Um, it takes it takes some... It's a challenge because you, you want to try to obtain good data for one thing. So you need... Um, you need to decide, you know, do you want it in a windy location or do you want it in a non-windy location? Are you more concerned about snow amounts mm. than wind? Um, so those are some factors you got to consider. We wanted snow amounts over here, so we chose a, a sheltered location. Okay. And um, But the other trick is communications because these things have to talk to, to the network. Um so the most popular method these days for remote weather stations is cellular uh, modems for connecting to uh, the weather station. But we don't have cell service right here. Right. Um, but what we do have is another weather station that we partnered with the Forest Service. Uh, well, this is, this is UDOT. Now, UDOT is in charge of these weather stations, basically. Um, I maintain them and, and they provide the, the network and, and, and whatnot. So we have a partnership, UDOT and the Forest Service have another weather station, high elevation one, that gives us temperatures and wind at okay. higher elevations. And what we've done is installed a, um, a radio at that location, which is just out of the clouds. You can't see it from here, or in the clouds. And um, that this station communicates with that station via radio. Then that really? station communicates down to Price, Utah, via cell phone. Wow. So can Price then see the data from this one, this we Fairview one? We all can one? see it. Everyone can. Price is just a, um, that's just where the cell tower is that we hit from, okay. from Monument Peak. Wow. And, um, yeah, and so our, our station in Spring City, it was opportune because... It just so happened that in the basin up there, we got dumb, it was just dumb luck because it's in a canyon, but there's just enough line of sight down the hill to see the um, cell tower. Turn around here, actually. Um, so yeah, it's a, it, it's a real challenge to get a station placed exactly where you want it and right. be able to communicate with it. Yeah, and that's interesting to think about. Okay, do we want it to for, do we want it to collect data on the snow or the wind, yep. depending on where you place that's it? That's right. And then because you're probably not going to get both. You know, the, down here is not going to tell us Jack about what's going on with the wind up <laughs> yeah, top. Yeah, exactly. We're out in a little canyon. Here. Um, so we don't even we didn't even put an anemometer on this on this station. And that's it's, the thing that collects wind. Yeah. Okay. It's a little it's a little propeller looking device that that collects. Um, wind speeds and direction. Were you a self-taught 
all this stuff or Pretty did you much. have any formal education yeah I, I've, I've been mentored in this stuff but um it's it's been pretty much self-taught really that's <laughs> impressive do you want to um do you want to keep these on or do you want to take them we can off? take them off for a second yeah i think it might i guess we'll never know what i thought might happen if we took the microphones out into the blizzard <laughs> it was snowing pretty hard this day and the wind was definitely blowing across the road it was a complete whiteout most of the time we were driving so um okay so after this happened we pulled the sled with the um weather machine off of the truck and then it was we like trudging through thigh deep snow and pulled it out into this clearing um and brett showed me how to turn it on and showed me that he has this little camera where you can see how much snow is falling and that it's all powered by a solar panel and of course he built all of it with you know like he said just minimal training he just figured it all out which is just so cool and then after that we drove up the canyon a little bit ways um a little bit further and we went skiing and that was so much fun um like I said he was they were making me laugh because they're like sorry like Laura's tracks are already here from yesterday sorry there's not fresh tracks and I was like this is incredible like there's not a soul out here we're the only ones here so it was really fun they showed me a couple of their um, favorite little safe spots to ski because the conditions were considerable for that day so we stayed on slopes less than 30 degrees um, they showed me the area that unfortunately that fatality had happened um, it actually was in a similar in the similar zone that we were skiing but in a in one little pocket that ended up being obviously steeper than 30 degrees so it was a sad situation where a pair of brothers went skiing and one of them wasn't wearing a beacon and so that you know is the first and foremost rule when you're in the backcountry is wear a beacon have your safety equipment your shovel and probe and they just weren't quite ready for that so um but it's just impressive like the stats speak for themselves like was said earlier on Brett has made leaps and bounds in making sure that the people down in that um, region, the recreators, the travelers, everybody that's trying to enjoy the snow that they're getting is doing it safely. And so it obviously just the the insight and the foresight from Brett to go down and to create these protocols to um, build from the ground up a system for that region is just so remarkable. And Honestly, I just want to thank Brett and Laura so much for having me for that day. Um, it was so much fun. I wish I could have stayed for Chile, maybe next time. Um, but if you ever get a chance to meet Brett or Laura, they're just fantastic people. They work so seamlessly together. They're a great partnership. It was just a wholesome day. We talked about pickleball and their cherry farm and a goat. And they asked me about my life. And it was just, it was really, really fun. So, there's some great people out there that are doing remarkable things for our state, and it was really a pleasure to get to meet the two of them. So once again, thank you so much, the Utah Avalanche Center, for the work that you do. I'm so grateful to you guys for making sure that we're aware of what's safe and what's not right now. Um, okay, check out their information at utahavalanchecenter.org once again, and thank you so much for listening. Have a good day.